What's up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I am Brandon Thomas Maxwell. I'm KT Rick. KT. 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 I'm Malcolm David. And I am Brandon Thomas Maxwell. The third. A.K.A. Pastor Sam. (laughs) You could never be me. (laughs) On today's episode, we are talking about Black History Month. And we're also going to have another conversation about the things we wish someone would have told us before we became Christians. So to get started, let's talk about Black History Month and what it is. I was completely unaware of the fact that white people celebrated Black History Month until I got to like college. And I was really perplexed by the fact that so many times people try to locate the beginning of Black History with an American president, but that's not actually what happened. Black History Month started off in 1926 by Carter G. Woodson, and it was Negro History Week. Week, that's right. Right. And it was connected to Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. It was a time in the calendar year where a lot of black folks and folks who were significant to black people's stories were concentrated. And so it felt like a good time to honor Negro History Week at that time. Since then, it has become Black History Month and it is a broader cultural phenomenon. And I think one of the things that I am becoming really frustrated with is the same way that pride has become corporatized and corporations try to profit off of Pride and they put gay shit in their windows for four weeks in June. It's popular and it's on trend to celebrate Black History Month for 29 days, 28 days um, in the month of February. And I think it makes me forget what the meaning of Black History Month is. So I'm just curious for each of you, what is Black History to you? When did you first become aware of it? And how do you celebrate or acknowledge it now, if at all? Since it's Black History Month, I'll go first. Come on, black man. Black man. <laughs> First, I want to correct something you said. Well, I don't know if it's a correction. You said that- You had a uh, real corrective spirit lately, and I'm about tired of it. <laughs> Lay down and take a nap. I don't, I don't know that white people celebrate Black History Month. I think maybe okay. they observe it. Some people acknowledge it. You know, some white folks detest it. Touche. Touche. You can correct that. I don't know how many actually celebrate it, <laughs> but- Progressive liberal white people celebrate it. It's like so, it's the thing to do, ain't it? I don't know. <laughs> My comment remains the same, even for progressive liberal white folks. Understood. You know, for me, I can't really locate a specific time. Growing up in school, is where I was probably introduced to Black History Month. It's sad that it wasn't in like my home, mm-hmm. being that I was raised by black people. And this is why representation matters. It was the black staff, mostly mostly staff um, who were non-educators, like the folks who were working in the front office or the assistant ball coaches or folks who weren't actually teachers because we didn't have a whole lot of black teachers in the school that I attended, as well as the students who would come together to acknowledge Black History Month. And because uh, we had, you know, a decent, population of black students, it was observed by the school. And so I, as early as elementary school, it was something that I was introduced to in the education system. Hmm. Malcolm, what about you? Yeah, I think my my introduction to Black History Month was definitely through the education system. Sam, I think similar to you. It's hard for me though to, to think about it um, beyond the context of like my my family and and my community growing up. So a lot of folks in my family would describe themselves as very patriotic. But I've realized recently 
what's interesting about that is there's this conflation of complicating American history and being unpatriotic. And I think one of the things that, that Black History Month does, especially for, for white folks in this country, is that it, it complicates, it problematizes, it causes us to reflect more deeply on the narratives that, that we have been taught. But deep down, I think there are a lot of people who feel like the history, the experience of black people in this country needs to be ignored because to look at it is to, to cultivate a sense of hatred for this country or it's unpatriotic or, or whatever. Yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm kind of interested in that as I think back on my experience of Black History Month as a as a child in the family I grew up in in the public schools of South Carolina. Um, and now, and now, how I think about it, Ricks. What about you? I don't necessarily remember it in public schools, although apparently I found out that it became a month, an official Black History Month in 1970, which was the year that I was born. Um, but, but, um, but <laughs> Sam, you're doing Sam's such a good job. Trying not to laugh. I I hear it. I, <laughs> Please note that was not the week. That was when it became the month. But um, I important think, clarification. Yeah, it is. I think that opportunities to learn or buy, like you were talking about, Brandon, earlier, are heightened during Black History Month now, whether at Target or Amazon or wherever. It's just easier to access during February. I think for me, though, it's important that we realize that our knowledge of history is so lacking. It's incumbent upon us to take advantage of the opportunities to deepen our knowledge, like the Black Church documentary on PBS that was on the last two nights. That's something that's probably happening because it's Black History Month right now. But February isn't the only time I'm engaged in trying to expand my learning. Our family is reading Ibram Kendi's new book, 400 Souls Together, which is going to take a lot longer than this month to read. But even that's not a comprehensive history. So it takes work. And that's work that I'm committed to doing year round. That brings up a thought for me, Malcolm, both as you, as you and Katie were talking, and I want to be clear for listeners, we're not at all trying to recenter whiteness by any means. But one of the things that I always talk about or think about is how black history is our history. It's not just this thing that we can take over here and put on the side for black people to celebrate and for us to acknowledge at a distance. But it is something in which all of us are involved, not in like an ownership way, not in like a slave or plantation way, but to the extent that all of us can point to ways in which our lives have intersected with black history. It is our history. But the challenge that presents for me, which I don't know if it's a bad thing, is so many times when white folks want to enter the story, they feel that it's necessary to enter that story through the lens of slavery and through oppression and through domination. And one of the things that I always like to lift up during Black History Month is the fact that black folks' history, our story, it doesn't begin with slavery. Like, there is an existence beyond whiteness. And I think part of the task for white folks in decentering whiteness is to push back on family members who always want to start with slavery as a starting point for black people. Who and what 
what were and are black people doing beyond the white gaze, beyond white oppression and beyond white domination? Because there's an entire history there. And or what are black people doing in spite of white domination? And how are we still finding joy and the ability to flourish in our lives in spite of all of the hatred and oppression that has exists? Like that's one of the things that I do think black history presents us the opportunity to be aware of if we take the time to listen and not to forget what's happened with slavery, but just not to stop at slavery as if that's the only story we can tell about black folks. Right. And I mean, you sent and the TikTok this morning of the gentleman who created the smallpox vaccine or who came up with that. That's a, it, it was a person who was enslaved to a Puritan minister. That was a black man. That was a black man. You are able to get a COVID-19 vaccine because a black man said, if you take some of this shit off of this skin that's infected and put it on the skin that's not infected, <laughs> that you're going to be vaccinated. And white folks didn't want to listen to him. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait a minute, this shit work. And then they claimed our shit. Stoplight. Y'all aren't having wrecks at intersections because of black people. Peanut butter. If you don't have allergies. Black people. Like, <laughs> like what? Garrett Morgan. George Washington Carver. Name these folks. Oh, you want to cite your... I, I can cite the source. Don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. We need a name. I was more so focused on the fact that we invented a lot of shit. I know. I'm messing with you. Oprah. <laughs> we invented that. <laughs> I think it's an important point you raised, Brandon, that it didn't start in slavery and that we're known for much more than folks who overcame slavery. But that fact is also important to point to the systemic ways of cultural decimation, right? The reason history locates us in slavery is because there was a very intentional effort from the the first Africans who were brought over until this present day to separate black folks from their history and the identity that gives them, as Dr. King might say, a sense of somebodyness that gives black people this sense of identity of who they are. On some degree, this speaks to what what Malcolm was talking about. You don't you you shouldn't be identifying with Mother Africa. You shouldn't be identifying with any of these other places. You are American. And that's why you even your conservatives now say, you know, we need to strip off all of these African American and Asian American and Hispanic American. We're just all Americans. Bullshit. I'm not just American because of what just American means. Uh, I don't want to be just American. And so y'all can keep that. We've seen stories recently about how like so much of that which white people identify as culture was stolen from other people. And so like it's really easy for white folks to distance themselves from black history or from like the atrocities that can that are part of black history, like slavery, because like, well, I wouldn't I didn't enslave people. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And who among your ancestors stole shit from black people, right? Like who was like listening in as a black person was singing or quoting a poem and claimed that as their own because there's so many ways in which black people are pushed to the side. Black people in our stories are pushed to the side. I just watched the documentary the other night on HBO Max called The Little Things. And it's a documentary solely committed to talking about how black artists aren't represented in the world's museum and how small of a percentage of of art that's identified as beautiful and identified as good and housed in these monuments that highlight what our culture is. Like, black people are completely and totally missing from that. But when you start to trace, not completely and totally, but virtually, they're missing from that. And when you start to trace people's history backwards and you trace people's influences backwards, it's like, oh, a lot of this shit started with black folks. I think about the uh, G's Band Quilt Collective and how there are these women in some of the most rural parts of Alabama who were making quilts 
beautiful quilts and a white man comes and says, oh my God, this is art. He purchases some of these quilts for a fraction of the price and then takes them and sells them to museums for millions and keeps the profits and never invest that back in the community. I think one of the things that white folks who want to be woke can do is to, if you want to start to trace your lineage and trace your history and figure out how you are involved in black history, like my challenge to white folks this year and every year is figure out how much of your family shit was stolen from black people. If you want to still say you wasn't an enslaver, your family was an abolitionist, that's fine. What y'all steal from black people? And y'all can pay me. My cash app is... (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants to do that. Even the good white folks, even the white folks who would consider themselves progressive, who would would consider themselves allies, like they don't want to go and find out that their great grandpa or their great great grandpa, you know, was this person. So, what do you say to them, Brandon? Like, how do you? I'm not not that you're trying to convince them of anything. But what's the benefit for them to trace their history and find out these things? I think the reality is what I have said to some friends in the past is I appreciate like the super hot and super cold white people more than I appreciate the lukewarm white people. Like either just tell me you're going to be a racist and be that because I know how to deal with that. Or like really put in the work to be an ally and ally is so overused now, but to 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 build and cultivate solidarity with black people to the point where I don't have to second guess or question you, right? Like I got like maybe three, four white people that I'm like, okay, we done did this thing. You might still slip up. You might still fuck up. You might still make me mad. You might still do some white shit, but we got the relationship now where I can call you on that and that's not gonna fuck up our friendship or our relationship or our future. And like, that's what's important to me. And so for white folks who say, I don't wanna do that, then stop hollering not Black Lives Matter. Stop hollering out, let's celebrate Black History Month. Stop doing that shit because you don't mean it. You're lukewarm. And if you want to go to the church, the Bible says, the Bible says that there's only one thing that God can't stand. And that's somebody who's lukewarm. Lukewarm. God spit you out. <laughs> Spew you out of my mouth. Out of God's mouth. So like, I'm, and I mean, I'm saying that jokingly, but I'm also really serious. Like, don't come to me looking at me with sad eyes as a white person if you ain't done the homework. Don't come with, don't, don't look at me with sad eyes. I'm sorry that you said that y'all have harmed black people for all this time. And if you're serious about this, that's actually what's required. Because when we get to that place of thinking critically about how black history is all of our history, It should be the case that white people who engage in that process try to think about how they live their lives differently. Who do you need to pay? If you got the family trust fund and you got all these dollars and these bills and you find out that your family didn't invent baby oil, but it was a black person, who do you need to pay? People might say that it's too simplistic to make it all about money, but it actually is financial at this point because there's all kind of joy and happiness and life we can cultivate without money, and we do that on a regular basis. But like I've had to come to grips with the fact that white people poor is not black people poor. Talk about it. Like White people be hollering broken. They driving a Prius. Talk about it. And I'm like, you driving a Prius? What does broke mean? Your stocks fail? Like, Talk about it. Like You lost some money in the stock market? Because when my cousin hollering broke, that means like they broke, broke. Like the bicycle wheels fell off. <laughs> Talk about it. And there ain't no car. So like, I think that's the thing that's at stake for me is if you all are serious, like let's stop doing the lip service. Let's stop writing documents. Let's stop doing Facebook posts. Let's stop making TikToks. Let's actually think about the structures that have existed for centuries 
that have positioned whiteness at the center of the universe and ensured that all financial things and all sort of life outside will be reconciled to itself and always benefit itself in the end. Because at the end of the day, are we still enslaving people? In some ways, yes. Is it still the case that we have voter suppression? In many ways, still yes. Does that look different now? Yes, it does. And I think it's this sort of critical work that's necessary for white folks to stop saying, but we've come so far. We haven't come far. We have morphed. We've, we've transitioned how we've done this. We've become more polished in our racism, but it's still there. I'm black 365 days a year, and I celebrate blackness every motherfucking day. What I'm most interested in are black futures. And if we're going to build black futures, I can't sit here and rehearse this history with y'all every year. I'm informed of the history. It impacts my everyday life. So I think I'm really strange in the way that I engage black history because I'm not trying to trade in that or traffic in that. I'm most interested in how does this rehearsal, this ritual, this liturgy, of celebrating black people once a year for 28 days transform us. And I don't find that many people are trying to have that conversation. I don't don't think many people are trying to have that conversation. I think it's for many reasons. I think the conversation that people are willing to have, unfortunately, is a currency or language that is too common for folks like you, Brandon, not to engage in, right? You're the only, it's like everybody everybody is spending with Bitcoin and you show up with like Brazilian hay ice or something. You're just like, no, nah, I'm going to use my own currency. F all it. You know, like, it's like, <laughs> it's like, even though I, 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 I would love for everyone to get to where you are. The reality is what you just said. Nobody's trying to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, because of that, because it's easy for people to say we have Black History Month, you know, that's a that's a step in the right direction. You know, look at what Georgetown has done. They researched their history and now they're um, offering free tuition for all the descendants of of folks who were hurt by previous institutional decisions. That's a step in the right direction. I think in the current climate, in the current conversation, taking the time to understand the history is important. And like you say, it shouldn't happen just in these 28 days of one month in a year. But I do think it's important because I feel like it has to happen on some level. Otherwise, you still have a bridge named after Edmund Pettus and people saying it should remain named after Edmund Pettus because that's our history. But it should. But it absolutely should. Because I'm not here to whitewash it. And so, I, and I know that I'm weird in that, but I'm sitting here like, so when you change the name of the Edmund Pettus um, Bridge, what does that do? That's not the question that I would ask. Like, I wouldn't ask, what does it do? Okay. I would ask, what it, why was it named after Edmund Pettus? And why is it still named after Edmund Pettus? I got Pettis? you. Um, those are the two questions That's I want to know. And once I receive the answers to those questions, if they say he was a great person in society, if they say he did so much for the community, if they said he is so looked up to and admired, then I got a problem with that. That's a different conversation. Now, not just for the sake of whitewashing history. I got you. And, but I, like, there was this video a while back where Tyrese was on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He was like, man, we got to rename this thing. You got to call it the Sunshine Bridge. I'm like, Tyrese, go home. <laughs> Please go home. We will not call this the Sunshine Bridge because you've come down one day and walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Like, we're not going to do that. But your point is well taken. Like, there has to be an intentionality behind how and why things are named. And I think part of the reason that I was kind of reactive to that is thinking about how other countries and cultures have 
ensure that there's architecture Correct. and that there are clear, noticeable ways that the countries and the community's atrocities and traumas yeah. are built into the fabric of the community. And that's what's at stake for me. And when I visited Alabama recently and visited the Equal Justice Initiative, something that not many people know is yeah. that that's a really a nationwide initiative. As much as you can go and visit the Legacy Museum, I was going to say colloquially, my folks call it the Lynch Museum, but it's not called that in real life. But as much as it's about that, it's also a project that's supposed to say, go figure out where this has happened throughout the entire country. And so we were intentional when we went to, to try to see all the other markers in the communities. And right by the Edmund Prentice Bridge, there's an EJI marker for where lynchings occurred. And it's like, there's a, there are still ways that I think we can transform this space, even when white folks have a different desire for maintaining the name of something, we can still create a conversation with that, with things like the Equal Justice Initiative. And that's what I'm after. How do we create dynamic conversations that do not whitewash history, but that force us into new spaces and into new conversations? Because I will always celebrate Ida B. Wells. I will always celebrate Conti Cullen. I will always talk about the Tuskegee Airmen. I will always talk about James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin. I will always talk about Grace. I, I'll talk about black folks every single day of my life, but I'm not going to do it in a nostalgic, romanticized way. And I'm also not going to celebrate my suffering. I find it not so coincidental that in most years, Black History Month coincides with Lent. And I'm not going to get preachy, but I always get frustrated with Lent when people are like, I'm going to give up social media for Lent. And they put this big old long post up there and they're like, I'm going to give up on Facebook. I ain't going to be on here no more. I'm going to see y'all after Lent. I'm getting ready for Lent. I'm getting ready for Lent. And they go away. And then like 27 days in, I'm just sneaking back on to say one thing. And then they go away again for the rest of Lent. And then after Lent is over and it's Easter, they post it every five minutes. You've missed the point of Lent. The whole point of Lent is that you die to something and raise to do life so that you are engaging in a different manner. And I think the most faithful thing white folks can do every Black History Month is to approach it as Lent and to figure out in what way am I still valuing whiteness? In what way am I still holding on to white supremacy? In what ways have I been hiding from the fact that I benefit from this whiteness? And how can I die to that and let it stay in the ground? So that the next time I come to Lynn, I'm not doing the same thing over and over again. All right, let's take a break. So this may seem like a hard shift to some people, but it's not, at least not for me. I'm going to introduce the conversation <laughs> in a very black manner. I'm sorry. It's still Black History Month. I'm not sorry. So sorry, not sorry. So like the one thing that I wish that I would have known before becoming a Christian is all of the shit that I know now about white people. I don't know if it's responsible for black parents to take their children to Christian churches. Well, let me rephrase that because the black church taught me a whole lot and I continue to affirm and celebrate the fact that I am a lot of the person that I am because of the black church. And I feel like black churches need to do a better job of teaching us like truly about the interconnectedness of Christianity and white supremacy. Like I wish I would have known that in an American context, this was a white supremacist religion 
or it was a religion utilized by white supremacists to do so much harm and damage. I think for the type of person I've been all my life, even in childhood, I may not have become a Christian, but I do think I would approach faith very differently for the entirety of my life. I would have approached faith very differently for the entirety of my life. Had I known the origin story of black people and white people and how they have interacted across the Christian tradition for years and for centuries at this point. So that's how it's connected in my head. I think that's important, man. Like when when I did start learning this stuff, unfortunately it was later in life, like in seminary, I was like, why would black people want to be Christians? Why? And the reality is a whole lot of black folks still don't know these realities. That's my point. I consider myself a Christian humanist. I'm probably more humanist than I am Christian. Don't tell my mama. I'm going to send her this whole podcast. <laughs> She's going to be like, what's a humanist? <laughs> Google it. So the only thing I can think of when you ask that question, because of course I was born into Christianity. So I guess like I, I chose it when I was confirmed. But the thing I wish I had known is that Christians aren't actually very interested in following Jesus. Come on, Katie. Mm. Um, you can't stop preaching now. You just started. Yeah, that's all I had, though. I, I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> that's where what happens in religion and in the institution gets away from what my understanding of who Jesus is or what Jesus is calling us to. And granted, I may have a different perspective, but I wish that I knew not to expect perfection. And and maybe that's a it's a white church thing, perhaps. But like I have an expectation that people in the church or people in Christian institutions might actually care about other people. And when it doesn't, when that doesn't happen, then it raises my blood pressure and I get angry. And the reality is that people just suck. I mean, or some people would talk about sin. I'll say it differently. I wish that I had a realistic understanding of the flawed nature of humanity, period. The thing that comes to mind for me, so I I grew up in a congregation that was white and upper middle class and just very comfortable, very insulated and very comfortable. And I think the, the gospel that I heard preached there most often was one that promised a similar life of comfort and insulation if you if you gave your life to to this thing christianity was a way of sort of ensuring your comfort um, it would answer your questions as i have grown older and as i've i've found a faith that i think sort of more closely aligns with what i actually believe and maybe turn in a different direction from the the faith community that i grew up in I feel like I kind of got lied to. Like there were so many people who wanted to make Christianity fundamentally about themselves and their own happiness. And so my learning to embrace a kind of Christianity that is not embedded in white supremacy um, is not fundamentally focused on my own comfort or answers to my questions or making sure that my future is bright, I have what I want. That is something that I didn't expect when I was when I was younger. Um, and it's a process I think I'm still going through. I'm still learning how to 
to disentangle those things. But I sure didn't know it when I when I signed up to be a Christian as a you know a twelve year old when I got baptized in the Southern Baptist Church I grew up in. This is gonna sound bad. I don't know how to make it sound any better. I wish I knew how many people who were instrumental to my early formation. I wish I knew how many of them didn't know what they were talking about. Hmm. And I'm not saying that I all of, all of a sudden know everything. That's certainly not the, not the truth. I think I'm more aware that even the more I pursue more knowledge, the less I know. And because of that, in my own interaction with folks, I try to allow a certain degree of freedom for them to process, for them to under, come to understanding in their own way. Whereas when I was growing up, it was like, no, people were definitive in... You know, it's like, no, this is the way, you know, no, you know, and, and as as a young person who was enthralled by some of these preachers and some of these folks who were teaching and who were preaching, it was like, they must know, they they must, this must be right. You know, I even went to college defending some of these folks' positions. I wish I knew that they ain't no shit. To round out this section, so had you known that, whatever that is, what would be different about your life today or as differently if you could go back and do it all over again, what would you do? I think if I hadn't known that the foundations of this shit in American context were white supremacists, like I probably would have been ostracized by my parents. I would have been telling them that they needed to leave the church because that's the kind of child I was. I had family Bible studies. I loved the Lord from a very young age. And I would have been like, this is the scripture the slave masters used to use. You need to, you need to leave. Um, but I, I don't know. I think... I'm kind of betwixt and between because I think for the seasons of my life where I have taken Christianity, Jesus most seriously and attempted to find, like follow the way of Jesus, like there still is something compelling about that message if you take it seriously. And that narrative formed me. And I think without it, I would have hoped that I would have found a different way to know what it meant to hope and know what it meant to love, and know what it meant to be creative. Like, I, I hope that I would have found that somewhere. And so I don't know. I, I think I actually appreciate the journey that I've had, and I don't know if I would change anything, but what I'm trying to task myself with doing is not rehearsing the same narrative all the time. Like we talked about earlier, like knowing what I know now, how do I not engage in, for me, what would be, what, how do I not engage in what would, for me, be, sort of like insanity, like repeating the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, like understanding that this narrative and these people and these communities got me to where I am. Now, who who am I going to become? So I'm not a later version of the same people who didn't know what they were talking about. I used to get so mad when I was in seminary and when I was in undergrad, and I would be like, why did no one teach me this? I went to Sunday school every single week. I went to Bible study every Tuesday. Why did no one teach me this? We spent all this time talking about true love waits and not having sex before you married. Why can't people are going to hell? And no one told me this. Like, Why were you so upset? Because they, because I felt like they knew. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. Because he could have been having sex that whole time. And... I could have been fucking. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing that I was talking to a friend of mine um, the other day who's like a new parent, has three small children. Her and her husband was like, we, we trying to learn how to be parents. And I was like, that's probably like an ongoing process, right? In 10 years, you'll still be learning it and you'll still be wrong about most stuff. And it was like so much stuff that... I, I need to forgive my parents about because they did the best they could. In some instances, they did do the best they could. It was messed up. No, that's bullshit. It was wrong. That's bullshit. 
it, you bullshit. might feel like it's bullshit. Uh, hey, my feelings matter. <laughs> Black feelings matter. <laughs> I'm not saying the, that the, they're you sound best. like a damn slave master. They said you might feel like this whip. You might feel like this. No, no, no. Like hell, no. So one no, of the I, things with me. Go ahead. One of the things with me was, and I and it's I don't consider this grace. I cause I look back on these folks and the pastor that I grew up with, who like was adamant about hierarchical leadership, not just in the church but in the community, and that there's an order that is. God and then Jesus and then the man and then the woman up under the man. I don't I don't believe that, Katie. I do not believe that. Shut up, Katie. Uh, <laughs> take this shut up, Katie, out because it doesn't really support my uh, assertion. What you do is more important than what you say. But 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 this was a person who sincerely believed in an interpretation, not because it propped up or supported him, right? It was this kind of genuine belief that this was revelation or interpretation that, that he had received and possibly from other from other generations before him. But it was something that, like, but he he believed with his heart. Like, you know, you get some shysty folks who, like, I'm 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 using this to prop me up or to 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 keep me in in a certain position. And then you have folks that know they they've drank the Kool-Aid all the way. Like it's I'm gonna die for this. Like that hill that they're gonna die on. Like this is what I genuinely believe. And for those folks, I'm not giving them a pass. I came to a realization that you was just wrong. Like you literally was wrong and you thought in your heart you was right. I'm not gonna send you to hell for that because then I become you. But I but I do know that you was wrong, and I and I don't have to eat that. I don't have to swallow that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to send nobody to hell, but I'm not trying to give nobody a pass. And I, I think that's because of my like black gay shit. Like so many times, like people be like, "Well, they're just a woman of their time, or they're just a man of their time, or a person of their time." They didn't know. No, it's so many motherfuckers out there that knew better. Like, what choices did you make that prevented you from being transformed? And I get what you're saying, Sam. And so there is some empathy that I can have, like for folks who didn't have access to these things and for folks who had to base their lives on lies. Um, and, and I think we all do it to a certain extent. To the, so to the extent that I can be compassionate with myself, I need to be compassionate with others as well. But I think for for my shit, I'm just like, no, nah, because I didn't have many people that I'm like, y'all really believe this because y'all was telling us not to have sex and then y'all was fucking everybody in the choir. Like, so you, you you didn't believe that. We had this conversation not too long ago and I was like ready to strike a match and say, burn all this shit down. And he was like, no, but this stuff is what shaped you and this stuff is all of this. And you talked about- That's not where I am today. And you talked about Clinton them and I know Clinton them wasn't perfect and shit. And you talked about all the respect you got for Clinton, how authentic- Who? Wasn't the youth minister at your church named Clint? Cliff. Cliff is different though. So Cliff wasn't doing that. So Cliff, so Cliff is somebody that fits in the category that you said, somebody who really believed it. Cliff didn't mean no harm, but them other motherfuckers. That's all that I'm saying, that there are some people. I'm not saying everybody. I'm not, I'm not trying to give a pass. One out of every 200. That's all I'm saying. I'm talking about the Cliffs. Okay. KT, what about you? I think I would have had more grace for myself. Like I thought I had to be perfect or I had thought I had to live into whatever that perfect thing was as opposed to really diving in and following what Jesus said. And so if I knew what it meant to follow Jesus, then I would have been a lot less tied into the crap that is the church and is the institution. Um, And I would have been more okay with challenging it earlier. Um, It took me a long time. 
it took me until after I'd been let in to challenge a church, and I would have done it sooner. And quite frankly, I probably wouldn't have stayed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm with you. I think I, I, that, that's part of what I was saying. Like, I could not have stayed in this shit had I known what I know now. Yeah, I would be in a very, very different place. I see grace at work in my story. Um, and so I don't know how much of it I would I would change. But I, I do think a lot about how hard it was for me. I, I can think to a, a very specific phase in my life where I felt like I had walked away from the church that nurtured me and I had no idea what I was walking towards. And those were years of... Um, like just real struggle for me on a, on a personal level. Understanding who I was and what I was called to, feeling like the community and the stories and the narratives that shaped me no longer made sense. I was really scared to, to do that. And I think I ended up staying as a part of that community for far longer than I needed to. And I stayed a part of no community for far longer than I needed to. I, I, I chose to distance myself from religious communities, not recognizing that perhaps there were some that took this seriously. We're going to take a break and be right back. So we've come to the end of this episode, and before we get to the altar call, I do want to go ahead and reiterate for those of you who may have missed the Theolab Media update on Monday that this is the last episode of The Mourner's Bench. It has been such a good ride, and it's been such a good time. We have so, so, so enjoyed recording this podcast, and as I shared on Monday, Malcolm has decided that it is time for him to step away from the podcasting world and to support Theolab Media in a different way as a listener and to be engaged in that format as opposed to being in front of the microphone. This is a bittersweet departure. Malcolm, we have really appreciated all of your contributions to Theolab Media and to the Mourner's Bench. And we're so grateful that we've had this journey together. And so, Malcolm, if you want to say a few words, I'd love to give that space. My heart is filled with gratitude just for, for you three as individuals, for the time that we have shared together on uh, on this podcast and away from it, um, planning and dreaming and thinking and strategizing and working. I just, it's been an incredible blessing. Uh, and that is not language that I use often. I do not have a blessed license plate on the front of my truck. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. I, I just, I'm, I'm truly grateful for y'all as individuals and for the the time and the the work that we have done together, and I'm I'm also just really excited to see what comes next for for Theo Lab for the Mourners Bench, you know, for I, for all of it. I just I'm excited to be a listener. I'm excited to to still watch in a different role and from a different vantage point the great stuff that y'all are doing. And even though this is the last episode of The Mourner's Bench, you are not getting rid of Pastor Sam, KT, and Brandon Thomas. We are coming right back on the Holy Shit Pod. 
And the trailer for that podcast will be hitting your local podcast app this Monday. You will also be able to hear that trailer right here on this feed, just in case you forget. We're going to remind you, so don't unsubscribe yet. Wait until Monday so that we can reroute you to the Holy Shit Pod, where you'll be hearing from Brandon, Katie, and Sam in the future. And now, for one last time, at least here, because we are going to keep the mourner's bench. We have to keep that, right? Yes, absolutely. That's been like listeners' favorite thing. When I talked to a few of y'all offline and just said, hey, we're thinking about this, I think the one resounding thing we heard is that we got to keep the altar call segment. So in some ways, the mourner's bench is living on within the holy shit pod. It'll just be the end of the show segment. So for all of you who have been worried about whether or not you're going to hear us get to, you know, read a little bit at the end of the episodes, that's going to (laughs) continue. It's just going to be called the mourner's bench now. So for one last time here on this podcast, with Malcolm, let's go to the altar because somebody's ass needs to be on this bench. Have you guys heard of this person, Jeremiah Johnson? Does that name sound, does it ring a bell to any of y'all? Me and Brandon had the exact same. We was like, <laughs> like. That's that black face where you're like, what the, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I'm about to Google him. Go ahead. Tell us about him. He He's white. I thought that uh, So if you're, if you're going to Google him, um, Google Prophet oh. Jeremiah Johnson. Baby, baby, his SEO settings is on it. I had to put Jeremiah Johnson. It said Jeremiah Johnson Ministries. He got them good SEO settings. Is that who you're talking about? Oh, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's him. That's him. He, the one and only. Uh, so Jeremiah Johnson Ministries uh, operates a, a YouTube channel uh, that has 77,000 subscribers. Uh, and he is famous for issuing prophecies. So, like, he, he tells all of his followers what's going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. He prophesied on November 11th. I'll let you do the math to figure out whether that was before or after the election that Donald Trump would be president. And that video that he posted on Jeremiah Johnson Ministries' YouTube channel has like almost 800,000 views on it. So this is a dude who like literally makes his money giving prophecies to his followers about what's going to happen in the world. What I think is so amazing is that this dude last week issued an apology to all of his followers that he got the prophecy wrong. And his followers, instead of being like, oh, wait, maybe this guy's full of shit, got angry at him and said he shouldn't have retracted his prophecy. The Lord spoke to him and Donald Trump will actually be president again. He's just not president right now. So I want to put Jeremiah Johnson on the bench, but what I really want to do is put all of Jeremiah Johnson's followers on the bench for like sending him death threats and getting angry at him that he didn't like keep the faith that Donald Trump would one day be president. It again. ain't a prophecy if it don't align with my beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Real quick, let me just throw let me just throw somebody on this bench while we while we hurling people head first on the bench. I want to put Austin Chen Jay. 
This this guy is running to be the governor of Michigan. He's black, and he says that Black History Month is racist. And should he become the governor of Michigan, it will be American History Month. There will be no Black History Month because Black History See, Month is racist. This shit right here, y'all get him. Y'all get him. I'm trying to help y'all. I'm trying to be y'all sibling. <laughs> I always know how to push Brandon's triggers. <laughs> that is a wrap on the Mourner's Bench podcast, but it is not a wrap on the Mourner's Bench because you can't sit down the bench, honey. So go ahead and think about next Monday and get excited about the Holy Shit Pod and listening to that podcast trailer when you hear it, when it drops. Go ahead to our new podcast channel and subscribe to that feed and share the podcast with a friend because somebody needs to hear the good news, honey. And there's going to be plenty of good news on that holy shit pod. We are so excited. Malcolm, we'll miss you. Pastor Sam, Katie, let's do this thing. Peace. So is it like, holy shit, or is it like, holy shit, or like, you get what I'm saying? Like, this is holy holy shit. That's the whole point. That's what I thought. That's all of it. It's holy shit, and holy shit, and holy shit, and holy shit. And holy shit. shit. And holy shit. That's 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 what I'm here for, some holy shit.